but also uh, it's probably beneficial to um, point out that it's really an illiquid asset class. It's not as efficient as the public market, right? You can't trade in and out of it as quickly as you can with a stock or, or a mutual fund, for example. It's going to take some time. It's going to be an illiquid investment. That cash is going to be tied up uh, for a period of time. But the benefit or the trade-off for essentially having that, that capital tied up is that you get current cash flow, usually, as long as it's a good investment. Uh, so it's cash flow on a monthly or quarterly basis that's paying you um, based on your equity amount invested. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. This podcast is intended for free thinkers, entrepreneurs, and knowledge seekers. Join us as we discuss relevant financial topics, explore with guests their financial journeys, and engage with experts in industries such as space, media and entertainment, real estate, and many more. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required. You're with your host, myself, Tim Bickmore. And today I have a guest, Giorgio Hopkins with MLG Capital. We actually had Giorgio on a podcast a few months ago, I believe. It was the beginning of 2022, uh, talking about real estate. Uh, we wanted to bring him back on and we wanted to go a little bit deeper in, in this uh, podcast discussing, you know, where does real estate fit in your portfolio? What does real estate look like when it comes to inflationary times that we're currently experiencing? So the environment's changed, which means the conversation's changed, which means we need to bring Giorgio back on to have that conversation. So Giorgio, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We really appreciate it. Tim, it's a pleasure. So good to see you again. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. The environment definitely has changed and uh, getting kind of caught up to speed on inflationary times and what's going on in the real estate market, I think will be fun for the listeners. Perfect. Well, let's get started with the questions. I mean, the first one, I think, is a really good one. It's a little bit of a softball. We can go into some details. But, you know, for our audience, when it comes to real estate investing, how does that fit in someone's overall portfolio? Where do you typically position it for your clientele? Yeah, great question, Tim. And a good, like you mentioned, a good way to start it off. So I know in our last podcast, we talked about diversification and obviously the benefit of diversification. So uh, I think it really depends on the type of client and the needs for that client. But so I'll just high level explain uh, a couple different scenarios for our clients. One being kind of the ultra high net worth family. Um, these are typically families with $10 million to $100 million or more of net worth. Uh, these families are typically trying to allocate anywhere from 15 to 20% of their portfolio to real estate. And that can be active real estate or passive real estate which I'm happy to dive into the differences of both later in this podcast, but um, they are typically having real estate exposure in their portfolio uh, of about 15 to 20%. Uh, You might have someone that maybe they're um, at the earlier stages of their career and they, all of their exposure prior, prior to investing to real estate has all been public equity. So maybe they don't even have any bonds in their portfolio Well, again, I think real estate could be a great benefit for them to diversify that portfolio, but they might not look to get up to the 15 to 20% exposure within their portfolio. Um, Maybe they start out at a smaller chunk to get comfortable with that exposure and then potentially increase over time as it might make sense. But also, uh, it's probably beneficial to um, point out that it's really an illiquid asset class. 
it's not as efficient as the public market, right? You can't trade in and out of it as quickly as you can with a stock or, or a mutual fund, for example. So if you're investing in an asset directly, it might take you months or if not years before you have a, an opportune time to sell that asset in the future. Or if you're investing in a fund or uh, a syndication, et cetera. And again, we can dive into the, those components, um, but it's going to take some time. It's going to be an illiquid investment. That cash is going to be tied up uh, for a period of time. But the benefit or the trade-off for essentially having that, that capital tied up is that you get current cash flow, usually, as long as it's a good investment. Uh, so it's cash flow on a monthly or quarterly basis that's paying you um, based on your equity amount invested. Okay. So when it comes to the real estate, which I'm glad, right? It's you. I love the liquidity piece. You have to be aware that there is a liquidity to that principle, which means it's not as efficient as the markets, which you should be getting some return for taking on some of that risk. And I think exactly. when Giorgio also mentions cash flow for our listeners, that's income, right? You're getting a check or a dividend, people may say, right? Something that is coming to them on a consistent basis, quarterly, annually, maybe monthly. Um, now, when it comes to real estate, right? Comparing it to like you mentioned bonds, or equities, specifically real estate, where do you feel like it fills the gap when it comes to other comparable securities someone may own? Like what role does it facilitate? Yeah, I would say uh, a lot of the wealth managers we've worked with in the past at our company have looked at it as a fixed income allocation or a replacement for a portion of fixed income. Um, So that's a good way to look at it because it's producing current yield. And then there's also a growth component to most real estate investments. So uh, you have appreciation. So essentially the asset appreciating over time, meaning it's going up in value. Uh, you have debt pay down. So essentially someone else is paying down the debt because by nature, real estate is a leveraged asset, just meaning that if you go and buy a single family home, for example, you're typically getting a mortgage from a lender or a bank. And most of us are taking... Uh, an 80% loan out from the bank and putting a 20% down payment in order for, to buy a house. So by nature, that 80% is called leverage. So it's allowing you to lever the bank to essentially get into this real estate asset. Same thing in the private investment world. There's leverage that allows you to put a, a smaller bit of capital to work and then utilize that leverage to essentially create greater returns for investors. Gotcha. Okay. Which makes a lot of sense. And that allows you to then maybe have liquidity in other aspects, but still hold that asset as a whole, allowing it to be paid down over time. So you can exactly. make your cash to other uses or other functions um, inside that portfolio, quote unquote. Absolutely. Um, okay. So when it comes, you mentioned a little bit just a minute ago, you're like, hey, passive versus active, which kind of goes into my next question is, Great. We've established that real estate can be pretty pretty good when it comes to diversification in our previous podcast. It also can function as maybe an alternative to fixed income, right? Or bonds or something in that nature. But then if someone really is like, all right, I want to build a portfolio, a real estate portfolio from scratch, where do they start? Do they start with looking at what is active versus passive when it comes to building that up? Like, where do you start looking? How do you kind of assess that? Give us kind of the, the run of the land there. Yeah, I think it all starts with the client and understanding kind of their uh, appetite for a few different things. One appetite is essentially what's their their appetite for risk? What's their their time horizon? So are they uh, looking to only be in an investment for a few short years? Mm-hmm. Are they looking long-term? So they're trying to build a portfolio over the next 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. 
or um, do they want something that's, you know, very quick within months? And so there's a few different uh, things that we can talk about. So um, on the active side, you can go and invest in uh, an asset directly. And then in doing so, and that could be a single family home. It can be uh, a small multifamily project, a self-storage. There's uh, plenty of asset classes, um, too many to probably go into and describe here, but you can invest in these asset classes directly. But how are you going to be analyzing these deals? How are you going to find these investment opportunities? How are you going to manage these investment opportunities? And that's probably the most important aspect because ultimately you can buy something and you're making assumptions when you're buying it that based on the given factors of income and expenses, it's going to produce X amount of cash flow. Yeah. And if those assumptions are incorrect or inaccurate in any regard, uh, that can be detrimental to the overall income or cash flow that it produces for that investor. And so uh, really having a great manager that can run through your business plan and execute it is going to be uh, paramount. And even if you're self-managing, knowing that you have the experience or at least the time to learn how to manage correctly. So that's kind of the active side. On the passive side, there's a number of different vehicles that you can utilize. I'll boil it down to just three to keep it simple. One is REITs. And so real estate investment trusts, those are typically publicly traded. So they are um, traded in and out. So if you're more of a short-term time horizon, this is a way for investors to get exposure to real estate, but still have that ability if they're uncomfortable with their, their capital being caught up for extended period of time, then they can trade in and out of it just like they could in stocks. Um, the next being real estate syndications. So these are investing in individual deals and then real estate funds. And these are essentially a portfolio of deals that you're invested into. So similar to like an index fund, for example. So with both of those kind of more passive vehicles, you are, investors are called limited partners, just meaning that their risk exposure is limited just to the investment that they're making. On the active side, if you're investing in, in a deal with your capital, you are fully exposed, meaning that if anything goes bad with that deal, then essentially they can come after you, let's just say a, a tenant at one of the properties sues you, for example, and, and God forbid, but unfortunately, they can come after you and all the assets that you own within your portfolio if it's not structured correctly. So there's that risk exposure on the active side. Again, on the passive side, limited partnership, you're only exposed to the amount of capital you have invested. So if you put in $50,000 or $100,000 into this limited partnership, your only exposure in case there's something, someone suing uh, the management or anything going on, a hurricane, that comes through that decimates the property, uh, something of that nature, you're only exposed to the capital you have invested. So uh, probably going on a tangent there, but but that's super high level, active, passive. Um, and then there's a number of things that you should be kind of looking for as you're vetting um, a, a passive opportunity as you're vetting an active opportunity. Well, I mean, I, what is which is great too, because when we're always talking about it with our clients, I think it's the first step is what kind of time do you have? How much time do you have to learn to do the active side of it? Do you have enough time to do it well and do it right? If not, do we lean over more to the passive side to get that exposure? Because maybe we just want that real estate exposure, but then how can we get it without 
you know, taking undue time from other things that may be producing somebody else more money, right? Because there is a level then of competency. And, and it's not that no, that anybody can't learn how to do real estate investments, but is it easier to leverage somebody else with their experience to do it for you? Um, and then what are you willing to do to be able to pay that? And people can do it both routes. We've seen it successful on both routes, but it's mm -hmm. definitely something that an individual and family should really assess themselves. Because I think for us, as always, we don't we what we don't like to hear is like, well, my friend did this, my family member did this, and so well, that's great that they did that. But do you want to do it? And what does that really mean? And kind of being self reflective in that way to be able to build up those those type of portfolios. So I love how you kind of established it from that angle, which is important. Absolutely, Tim. And, and to to add on to your point, I I would always recommend to do a a time versus return analysis. And, and I'll break that down a little bit just by sure. saying, hey, if you want to go, or let's just say that your your time, maybe you get paid $100 an hour, which $100 an hour, 40 hours a week, $4,000 a week, so 16000 plus per month, right? So that's you valuing your time. If it takes you 30 hours of your week to manage a, a real estate asset, right, or even 30 hours a month, are you getting enough return from that asset to make it worth your time? Yes or no. Or if you're passive, then maybe you're investing capital, you're earning return, but it requires maybe just your upfront evaluation of the sponsor, the location and the deal. But after that, you're just essentially checking your, your dividend statements, right? Mm -hmm. And you're not actively doing it and you're leveraging the expertise and the experience of a different operator. So that gives you the ability to really scale the amount of earnings over time compared to actively managing something. And again, maybe not recouping as much earnings on your time. Yeah. So I always, I always ask investors to look at that and then really reflect on what's the type of lifestyle that you want to live mm -hmm. and is one route more congruent than the other. Right. Do you mind doing the, the grunt work, fixing the toilets in the middle of the night on the active side? Then if so, if that gets you fired up, then go ahead and do that. I think that's a that's yeah. an amazing thing. Right. And we, we probably need more of you out in the world. Right. But if, if that doesn't excite you and you still want, again, exposure to real estate, you still want solid returns, then maybe the passive side could be a, a better fit for you because it frees you up to do what's like you mentioned, Tim, the things that have probably already earned you a lot of income get to continue to do those things. And then you can spend more time with friends, family, et cetera, doing the things that you like to do ultimately. Yeah. And I, and I love that analogy too, because like there's obviously investing diversification in, in asset classes. Right. And then there's also diversification of your time and you can be too diversified from a time perspective to actually not generate. There is a really interesting article at one point um, that somebody in our industry had written about that was like the idea of the redwood versus the bush. Right. And the redwood grows and has a strong has a strong trunk to be able to grow very, very big and tall and high and then starts to branch out. Right. It really kind of comes down to the theory of like focus on what your competency is and then allow yourself to get to the point where then you can start to branch out instead of a bush where bushes kind of grows out and never gets tall because it sucks up too much resources from around it. Right. And so that's yeah. kind of, and that's kind of the point. And the roots don't grow deep. They grow shallow. And so the mm -hmm. overall idea is that you can over diversify or you can or you can over allocate your time that it may sound good to have one home, two homes. That's awesome. But in order to really make it a true portfolio, you probably need 10, 15. And then that means you have to evaluate the time which it takes to to manage that. 
right. over time. So we, we always have, analogy. I love that. Yeah, I always have those kind of conversations, um, which is very similar of, of making sure that you understand and then what's the best way to allocate into that resource. I love it. I love it. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna change I'm gonna change the gears just a little bit. Yeah. Um, as we you know started the podcast, right? Start talking about hey, the environment's changed. Information about that environment's changed. We've seen inflation. It is here. Things have gone up. Which, as you mentioned, Giorgio, uh, interest rates have risen, which makes it a little bit harder to get that leverage you're talking about. Right? It's a little bit more expensive, right. which may affect how much these buildings can cost and how much money we can get out of them. Um, so I just love to hear about where the environment is today and what you what you at MLG Capital are seeing when it comes to some of that real estate investing with this inflationary time that we are currently experiencing. Yeah, and and I'll circle back on an earlier point because I think it it leads into this question pretty well. Um, I was talking about how the market is very efficient, and and that's because people are constantly valuing and revaluating stocks and and different metrics within the marketplace constantly, whereas Real estate is a very inefficient or fragmented market. And because of that, what happens is it, it's just prone to human error, right? Uh, and I can give you a couple of examples. You might have um, an operator who maybe they um, they acquired an apartment complex. And I'll just give you a live example. They apart- acquired an apartment complex and they thought that they could self-manage it uh, themselves. And they wound up... Uh, not screening tenants properly. And ultimately they only had about 40% of the tenants paying after about a year's time. So if you were anticipating cash flowing, I could tell you that 40% of your, your potential income coming in, is probably going to be detrimental from a cash flow standpoint. Um, So we were able to find that human error and essentially capitalize on that. So acquiring that asset at a steep discount, putting our professional management in place, and now we can increase the net income produced at that asset and thus exponentially increasing the value. And I can get to the valuation standpoint here shortly. But uh, so that's that's high level is it's a very inefficient market. So both in good and bad time, the market is, is prone to human error. So I think you can, as long as you know what you're looking for, you can always find a great deal, again, in both good and bad times. Sometimes it just takes a lot more time to uncover those good deals. And maybe a bit more negotiation with the seller uh, who might be a little contingent, uh, contingent uh, on uh, selling at a price that they could have sold for maybe nine months ago uh, and giving up on that price for something a little bit less. So, uh, And we've come across quite a bit of that. But so in this rising interest rate environment, as you can imagine, uh, the cost to service the debt has increased. And so when you're looking at it from an investment standpoint, you have to be thinking, well, how much uh, income do I need to offset the rising cost, right? And so um, if that's an asset that you own in your portfolio today and you have variable rate debt, meaning that it's increasing with the increasing rates in the marketplace, then you have to be thinking about those things. If you have fixed rate debt, meaning that the debt is stable for a period of time, then you might not have to worry about that because you're not exposed to the interest rate environment. If you're looking at a new asset, that's when you're having the conversation with the seller and you might say, well, a year ago when interest rates were at 2 and 3%, maybe it was worth this amount. However, given that the rates are now in 6 and essentially 7%, under the same metrics of evaluation, nice. if nothing else changed, then that price 
has to come down. And again, some sellers are willing to capitulate there and others aren't. So you might have to look at a lot of deals before you get a yes on, on something. But uh, I'll stop there and, and <laughs> check in with you. Well, no, that's great. I mean, because we talk about it all the time, right? You have the inverse reaction of as interest rates rise, you should see an as- asset price come down, right? Because it's now more costly to buy it. And if you do your uh, future value calculations, present value calculations, all of a sudden now that that cost of that asset price should actually reduce. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen in the market, right? Everything is negotiated. Everything is is a deal. But theoretically, you should start seeing some of that. And I do love how you mentioned as well that you can find good deals in bad times and good deals in good times. It just may may mean that you may not find as many good deals in the good times, quote unquote, but you may feel into a lot more in the bad times, um, which also makes me think that if I were to ask you, Giorgio, that you're really focused on the purchase price because the purchase price dictates if that's going to be a good investment, depending on the environment, which you can't necessarily always know, right? You can see exactly. interest rates increasing the, the at the rate they did in the last roughly 10, 11 months. Um, and that changes, obviously, the calculations in which you input to to find a good investment. So um, finding the right purchase price at different metrics and different variables is always extremely important, which goes back to making sure if you're going to do it on your own, knowing how you can run some of those modelings and understand that the environment can change. Because typically speaking, if I'm not wrong, most of the time you're looking at, you know, fixing out some of these debt for commercial 10, 15 years. So you still have to make sure that you're going to have to rewrite that debt at some point. Um, even though it may exactly. be jammed on a certain schedule to make sure it's the it's the appropriate uh, time. Because if you wrote the investment at two and a half or 3% now, and then your debt's going to come due and that debt's then going to have to be refinanced at six or seven, now that deal doesn't make sense anymore. Because exactly. you can't, and, and can't increase your income as quickly as maybe the interest rates has risen. Um, which yeah, is and, and we're seeing a lot of that in the marketplace. And especially over the last couple of years, there are a lot of kind of risky debt products out there. So debt funds and, and things of that nature to where they were short-term variable rate debt, but they allowed for operators to get into commercial real estate assets that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to purchase, but they were usually two to three year term on those debt products. So they might've been fixed that, or let's just say in this example, they are fixed, but again, a lot of them were variable, but if they were fixed at a certain rate, maybe three, 4%, if their their debt comes due this year or next year, well, unfortunately, they're going to have to refinance into a, a higher interest rate environment, and they may not be cash flowing at that point, and so they're going to be forced to sell. And again, this is that human error aspect of real estate. So we'll be looking for those operators that may have made a mistake of this nature, and we'll be sure to capitalize on it. Damn. And and that that might sound a little uh, <laughs> capitalistic, but. Uh, ultimately, I mean, we are an investment firm focused on providing volume returns for our investors. And we we look to to find the best opportunities in any marketplace to do so. I do have a question for Giorgio. Out mm-hmm. of curiosity, we've been talking about at least for more primary residence um, perspective, but I'm also curious on the commercial side and what the investments you're looking at is mm-hmm. what we've noticed, at least in the, in the um, primary home market, that interest rates have risen significantly, but asset prices haven't quite seen the decrease yet so dan uh our my business partner obviously had a really good saying like we're in purgatory <laughs> like it's like this purgatory <laughs> moment where it's like the you know the interest rates are high and you're also getting it at that price where it was at three yeah. percent instead of six percent right mm-hmm. are you guys seeing that currently in the market where the environment hasn't changed it's changed rapidly but the prices haven't come down 
Stay tuned for the second part of the episode. Like and subscribe! Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time! The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments, broker-dealer or custodian may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC unless a client service agreement is in place.